This is Overwatch, a podcast presented by the Institute for the Study of War. Just over one year has passed since the United States signed an agreement with the Taliban that commits U.S. forces to leave Afghanistan this May if the Taliban has met certain conditions. On this episode of Overwatch, Frederick Kagan, director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, sits down with General David H. Petraeus to discuss the situation in Afghanistan, the state of the U.S.-Taliban deal, and the dangers for American national security of withdrawing U.S. forces from Afghanistan under these circumstances. General Petraeus is the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. His 37-year career in the U.S. military included command of the 101st Airborne Division in Iraq, Multinational Force Iraq, in which capacity he developed and executed the surge strategy, the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, and the U.S. Central Command. General Petraeus, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Fred. Thanks. We're recording this podcast on the anniversary of the signing of the deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. The agreement specifies that U.S. military forces will withdraw from Afghanistan by May if the Taliban has met certain conditions, including breaking with al-Qaeda, and if there has been progress in talks between the Taliban and representatives of the Afghan government and society. So, General Petraeus, the first question I think we need to ask is, was this the right deal to make? I don't think so. So, If that was what we were seeking, I don't think this was the right deal to make, candidly, Fred. Uh, It certainly is not one that seems likely to lead to a durable, equitable, sustainable solution in Afghanistan. If you think about what the Taliban wanted, it gave them a great deal of that. They essentially want us to reduce and then to remove our forces, and they wanted their fighters and leaders out of detention. There were well over 5,000 of them, as I recall. They've gotten us to reduce the forces. They have gotten their fighters uh, out of detention. In fact, there's already over 500 of them that are back in detention because they returned to the fight instead of laying down their weapons as was supposed to have been their commitment. And in the meantime, the level of violence has actually gone up Uh, perhaps not against the U.S. forces, although they're pretty hard to get to now because we're doing an advise and assist and enable mission rather than fighting on the front lines. There is certainly no sign that they are cutting their ties to al-Qaeda. In fact, they're actually referring to al-Qaeda members as refugees, which was a term that they used to use when they sheltered the group before 9-11. And of course, you'll recall that the 9-11 attacks were planned in a sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan during the time that the Taliban controlled the bulk of the country. And then beyond that, there's been a campaign of targeted murders against journalists, judges, human rights activists, uh, civil servants in Kabul uh, that seems to be intended to eliminate as many of the modern-minded Afghan professionals as they can, those who, in other words, oppose the Taliban's extremist agenda. My colleague, Vance Surchuk, our mutual friend, has referred to this as a Khmer Rouge-style campaign of targeted murders. And they've gotten us to reduce our forces on the hope that eventually they would actually negotiate a settlement with the Afghan government and Afghan people, which is still actually at the stage of determining the agenda of what they're going to talk about, much less actually coming to some agreement that again would produce the kind of equitable and sustainable agreement that we should want to see for our Afghan partners. 
Now, some argue that the reason why the Taliban isn't abiding by the conditions in the deal is that U.S. forces are still there, and that what if, if the U.S. really wants the Taliban to abide by this agreement, we should just withdraw our forces, and, and then they would. What do you think of that argument? Well, I think that's very unlikely, and we certainly don't see signs of the kind of conduct, if you will, that we would want to see in those rural areas that are controlled by the Taliban now. Really, again, what they have wanted was to get us out of the country so that they could fight much more effectively against Afghan security forces who would not be supported by our enablers, our drones, our precision air strike advice and assistance and so forth, presumably so that they can once again control as much of the country as they possibly can, as they were able to do in the wake of the civil war of the 1980s, the civil war that began, of course, when the Soviets stopped funding the Soviet-installed Afghan government in the wake of their own departure from Afghanistan. That was not a happy period for Afghanistan. You'll recall that the soccer stadiums became killing grounds. Women and girls weren't allowed to go to school or have a meaningful place uh, in the economy or society. Now, again, we're not there to purely to support those kinds of activities, if you will. We're there because that's where the 9-11 attacks were planned. We went into Afghanistan when the Taliban refused to eliminate that sanctuary that they allowed the al-Qaeda forces to have in eastern Afghanistan. We did eliminate it. And sadly, the al-Qaeda and now also the Islamic State have tried to reestablish a sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan. That is our overriding national security objective to prevent that from happening. And we do know that when the Taliban is able to control certain areas, that there is a high likelihood that al-Qaeda may find sanctuary in some of those areas. In fact, there was a sanctuary in southern Helmand province in the southern part of the country a year or two ago that our forces discovered and together with Afghan forces eliminated. That is the overriding reason we have stayed in Afghanistan, and that's why we went to Afghanistan to eliminate that sanctuary. Beyond that, of course, Afghanistan is also a very important platform for the so-called regional counterterrorism campaign. It's well known, for example, that the operation that brought Osama bin Laden to justice in Pakistan was launched from eastern Afghanistan. So we have some very real national security objectives there. We also certainly should want to ensure that our Afghan partners are not sentenced to a civil war once again as a result of our haste, our desire to reduce the final forces that we have there, keeping in mind that we have some 2,500 or less while our NATO and non-NATO allies have somewhere around 8,000 as well. This is a vastly reduced force, needless to say, from what you will recall. In fact, when you and the other Dr. Kagan, your wife, spent a year in Afghanistan at, at my request to help us during that period that I was privileged to command, the International Security Assistance Force. At that time, we had 100,000 American men and women in uniform and another 50,000 from our coalition partner countries. The fact that we've been able to reduce as substantially as we have and still largely maintain uh, security, although it has undeniably eroded to a level that is quite worrisome, 
But that is a tribute to the fighting of the Afghan National Security Forces. There's no question that they are fighting and taking casualties and dying for their country, as our casualties have been dramatically reduced, along with our numbers and the cost. But what the Taliban would like to see is for us to withdraw completely, presumably so that they can indeed increase the areas that they control, and ideally, from their perspective, together with other like-minded insurgent and extremist uh, organizations like the Haqqani Network and so forth, retake control of Kabul in particular. So it sounds like it's fair to say that you don't think that the conditions of the agreement will be met by May, that would, uh, and let alone that conditions would be set by May to withdraw uh, U.S. forces according to the timeline of the deal. Is that a fair assessment? It is. And now let me just say, Fred, that no one would like to see endless wars and our involvement in endless wars end more than those who have been fighting them and and those in particular perhaps who have been privileged to command them, who at the end of the day were the ones writing the letters of condolence to America's mothers and fathers and are most keenly aware of the costs, the sacrifices of these efforts. I would love to see an agreement that allows our forces and other coalition forces to go home and enables Afghan forces to continue to secure their country and Afghan institutions to perform the other functions necessary for their country. The problem is that that prospect is just not really there. Again, the Taliban have no shot. The Taliban have shown no signs of being willing to reduce the violence. Indeed, they have this campaign of assassinations and and other operations to erode the control of Afghan security forces and to reduce the numbers of those who, again, are the modern-minded Afghan professionals who most significantly oppose the kind of Taliban rule that one anticipates would be once again established. And so, again, in the absence of the prospect of a, again, a durable, sustainable agreement that would be favorable for our Afghan partners and their government, I don't see an alternative to staying. And we should be very clear. Oftentimes, we hear leaders in Washington from both parties who, again, understandably want to end endless wars. But what they're really talking about is ending U.S. involvement in a long war, an endless war. They're not necessarily talking about ending the war. The war continues even if our forces withdraw unless there is a durable agreement. And that's my concern in this case. We Certainly we can end our involvement in Afghanistan. We can withdraw our final 2,500 forces, which I question whether they're enough actually as it is. But what we leave behind is undoubtedly likely to become a civil war and one that ends up with millions of refugees and and all of the other horrors that one would imagine would result from the kind of civil war that we saw in the 1980s. We'll see the warlords from different regions of Afghanistan reactivate their forces, and there will be an enormous battle, as there was, again, before the Taliban were able to take control of the capital, Kabul. We'll see that kind of battle once again. Again, that was a very, very difficult, again, horrific period for Afghanistan and the Afghan people. 
And that is what is most likely to result from a situation in which we withdraw our forces without a reasonable, durable, sustainable agreement. So end endless wars is a bumper sticker. It's not a strategy. It doesn't tell us what to do, and it doesn't even, as you explained so eloquently, end the war. It just ends the American involvement in the war for a time, although the risk that we will be drawn back in at a later date and possibly in much worse conditions is very high. But I think that we also owe it to the new administration to offer some ideas about what they might do instead of executing the Trump-Taliban agreement. And one of the things that's worth interrogating, I think, is the way that agreement was negotiated. Well, the challenge has been that if the enemy knows that you want to leave, and in fact, if you are drawing down without them having to really concede anything, you're getting nothing really in return. And the incentive for them to negotiate seriously is not particularly significant. So what is the answer? Well, the answer would be to declare a sustained commitment that is sustainable. And sustainability, from our perspective, is measured in the expenditure of blood and treasure. And the same would be true of our coalition partners. So how much would we be willing to provide in terms of advice, assistance, enablers uh, from the air and on the ground, and funding for Afghanistan and the Afghan security forces? Clearly, we do need to focus our U.S. military, understandably, uh, on the tasks involved in the resurgence of great power rivalries, as it's termed, the era of great power competition. And certainly the bulk of that focus, rightly, will be in the Indo-Pacific area. And reducing our commitments in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Africa, and so forth is very important in that regard. But certainly maintaining a modest force in those countries is sustainable for the world's greatest military force. And in fact, you have to think of the United States when it comes to military tasks, like the guy in the circus that puts a plate on a stick, gets it spinning, then does another one and another one. And, and you know, we have to maintain a number of plates on sticks. We have to keep them spinning by giving them attention. Clearly, the biggest of those plates has to do with, again, our deterrence mission and partnership missions in the Indo-Pacific region. And that focus has to be paramount. But it doesn't mean that you can't undertake other tasks or shouldn't undertake other tasks that are still necessary, that you can't keep other smaller plates spinning. And I firmly believe that we can do that quite simply, frankly. Again, a modest force, let's say 5,000 or less Americans in uniform along with, again, 8,000 coalition partners supporting our Afghan security force partners, that is very doable. And actually, if the enemy, if the Taliban comes to see that we have the, the level of commitment that we've committed to a sustained and sustainable presence, you're actually more likely to get serious negotiations than if they sense that what you really want to do is just get an agreement that justifies your withdrawal from a particular, quote, endless war. That's the way I believe we should look at this. And noting, 
for what it's worth, we have tens of thousands of troops deployed around the world, certainly none in active hostilities like this. But in the Korean Peninsula, there's still between 30 and 40,000 troops. There's 30,000 in various places in Japan, tens of thousands still in Europe, as you know, tens of thousands more throughout the greater Middle East. We can afford to do that. We need to do that. Again, we do have interests around the world, even as we rightly shift our focus, rebalance our attention, resources, funding, and so forth to the Indo-Pacific region. So that would be how I would come at this. And I'd finally note that, you know, we have seen this movie before. We did withdraw all of our combat forces from Iraq. It was a very different situation. Actually, violence went down. We drove it down by some 85% during the surge from 2000, early 2007 to the summer of 2008. And it continued to go down in subsequent years, as you'll recall, for a good three, three and a half years, even as we reduced our forces very substantially and then finally reduced, withdrew the final combat forces and then forced our General Lloyd Austin, the last commander on the ground in Iraq of combat forces in late 2011. And then tragically, we watched as our former partner, the prime minister, pursued highly sectarian activities that tore the fabric of society apart once again, once again alienated the Sunni Arab population, took his eye off the Islamic State. It was able to reconstitute itself, drift into Syria, gain enormous additional power, and then sweep back into Iraq and actually control the northern part of the country, which was part of its caliphate and much of the western part as well, and required us, of course, to go back into Iraq uh, to ensure that the Islamic State forces weren't able to attack the capital of the Kurdish regional government in the north, nor the capital of Iraq, Baghdad, in the center. So again, I think that the price of a sustainable commitment is one that we certainly can afford. And it is likely that it produces better negotiating opportunities than a situation where the enemy knows that you're just desperate to get out of there and go home. And really what you want is an agreement that will allow you to justify that back in, in our home country. I think the challenges of working with the partner that we have in the Afghan government have led to thinking about other partners that we might try to work with instead. And I think, in fact, you can, in a certain sense, characterize the deal that the Trump administration did with the Taliban as as it's kind of looking at the Taliban as a preferable partner uh, to the Afghan government in some respects, which I think is uh, pretty problematic. But there's long been an argument that says that the partners we really should be focusing on are the partners that have a much greater stake in Afghanistan than we do, and that is Afghanistan's neighbors. And that, in fact, what we really should do is probably pull our forces out. But regardless of that, we should really focus on getting Afghanistan's neighbors engaged and making clear to them that they're going to be responsible for the disaster on their borders and that they need to step up and take care of this problem. Do you think that that approach holds promise? I'm afraid that I don't. Now, we have certainly sought repeatedly to engage Afghanistan's neighbors, and most significantly Pakistan. There have been periods where we thought that they were being helpful, 
the period of 2009 uh, was a real high water mark in that regard, where Admiral Mullen, then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had a very good relationship with the Chief of Army Staff, General Keani, as did I. We worked it very, very hard. I was at Central Command. We provided enormous assistance to the Pakistani Army and their, their military forces as they combated the Pakistani Taliban, a different group from the Afghan Taliban, which had been threatening the outskirts of Islamabad, in fact. And they went into Swat Valley and then into all these different tribal areas, Bajur, Moman, Khyber, Oryxai, the South Waziristan, and so forth. But unfortunately, they could never really close their forces on all of North Waziristan in particular, which is really the heart of darkness there, and the location where you find the Haqqani network and al-Qaeda's senior leadership, most likely the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, a number of other groups, nor were they ever able to do anything to pressure the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban uh, headquarters, which was outside the capital in Baluchistan. And that was very, very frustrating, needless to say. Uh, it's a unique situation for our efforts like this, uh, certainly not something that we saw in Iraq, where the major insurgent groups all had their headquarters outside the country. In Afghanistan, that is the case. And it's very difficult to put real pressure on the Taliban senior leaders if they're sitting outside Quetta, again, the capital of Baluchistan. By the way, their shura, their top council is called the, the Quetta Shura, which gives you an indication, again, where they're generally located. Beyond that, Iran has generally been unhelpful. It provides a modicum of support to some of the Taliban that are in the areas of Afghanistan contiguous to Iran. And then if you look at the other countries to the north, again, they all have interest in Afghanistan, but certainly not the kind of power of influence or what have you that would ever give you hope that their involvement there in some fashion would enable you to reshape this situation. So we have worked this very, very hard. The frustrations with Pakistan, again, the country in which these groups have their headquarters outside Afghanistan and generally beyond the reach of our forces and capabilities, those frustrations are very, very significant. We have tried every approach from enormous help to them. Uh, again, Ambassador Holbrook and I secured very substantial economic assistance to them. I think it was 6.5 or more billion dollars over a five-year period. We provided enormous security assistance and a variety of other elements of support in the economic realm. And yet we were unable to get them to deal with these groups on their soil, which could have contributed so much to the situation in Afghanistan, where the fighters of these groups were making life so difficult for the Afghan people, for our coalition forces, and, and for the Afghan government. So again, that approach certainly should continue, but I think you should have very measured expectations about what it is likely to achieve. It is not going to be a game changer. Uh, nor is Russian involvement back in there, which has generally been unhelpful at best as well and has even included in more recent years, as you know, uh, bounties on the heads of some of our soldiers if the Taliban kill them. So there's no silver bullet to be found in the neighboring countries, unfortunately. 
And in many cases, not only is there no silver bullet, what is going on with those countries and in those countries is decidedly unhelpful, especially, again, when it comes to the case of Pakistan. So to conclude, I think you've made a very strong case that a very small American deployment in Afghanistan, something below 5,000 troops, enables our allies from Europe and Australia and elsewhere to help us, help the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces put pressure on the Taliban, put pressure on the Haqqani network, put pressure on ISIS, and set conditions for uh, a settlement of that war that would ensure American security interests are preserved and would allow the chance for real peace in Afghanistan. I think that's a very cogent argument. I think that it's an extremely important argument. And I think that as this administration continues its review of the deal and of its policy in Afghanistan, it's an argument and consideration that it should take to heart, particularly coming as it does from you, sir, who have tackled such terribly difficult problems as those in Iraq in 2007 and those in Afghanistan during your tenure there. And I think that your expression, hard is not hopeless, uh, really characterizes the most important thing that we need to keep in mind as we look at what to do in this difficult situation. Thank you, General Petraeus, for your incredible service to the nation. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us about Afghanistan today. Well, thanks, Fred. Thanks for this invitation. Thanks also for what you have done over the years when you oversaw the think tank study, if you will, that was a very important intellectual contribution to the surge in Iraq. Thanks for what you and your wife did during your own year-long deployment in Afghanistan. And thanks for summing up so effectively that, indeed, a sustained, sustainable approach is the best alternative at this juncture, noting that none of the alternatives is easy or without cost or going to be short in duration. We do need to recognize with our eyes wide open the challenges of Afghanistan, the continued frustrations, but also recognize very clearly what the result would be of a full U.S. withdrawal at this point in time without a durable, sustainable agreement, especially when viewed from the Afghan perspective. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overwatch. We look forward to your feedback on this episode and previous ones. Visit www.understandingwar.org to learn about ISW's work and to sign up for our mailing list.